0: Somewhere in space. This may all be happening right now.
1: Welcome to Star Wars at the Movies. Star Wars. Star Wars. Star Wars. Star Wars. That the movies, an international oral history of cinematic experiences from a galaxy far, far away.
0: I've seen Star Wars about a dozen times. Obishto Star Wars. Seventeen times. Star Wars. Uh, 22
2: times. 34.
3: Forty times, and it was great each time.
2: 41
3: times. About 57 times.
2: You can never get too much of Star Wars. I. I've seen the first Star Wars 153 times. All
3: together, we have seen
0: Star Wars 324 times. We've been here for six days and it's great!
1: Hello there! Welcome to Episode 11 of Star Wars at the Movies. I'm Steven Danley and we'll be taking a two-part trip to Southern California's Orange County for the next pair of episodes. Sitting between the bustling cities of Los Angeles to the north and San Diego to the south, Suburban Orange County is one of the most populous counties in the U.S. And wherever there are sprawling suburbs, there are also packed movie theaters. And what better way to spend the endless SoCal summers of the late 70s and early 80s than catching the Star Wars trilogy on the big screen? Let's go, drink! this spring, I was able to spend an afternoon with two Orange County locals and Star Wars enthusiasts who shared their memories of that time and place. First, you'll hear from Lisa Cowan, who happened to co-found and co-run Mark Hamill's fan club in the early 80s, and and would go on to write for the Lucasfilm fan club as well. She was right in the middle of all the action in terms of original trilogy fandom, uh, and is just a great storyteller on top of it. Uh, one quick note, uh, Lisa mentions a couple of Orange County theaters, uh, the City Center and the synodome. and I'll be delving further into both of them in part two on the next episode. With that, let's hit the feature presentation.
0: And now for our feature presentation.
3: My name's Lisa Cowan, and I'm a California girl. I was born in Fullerton, but mostly grew up in the Torrance-Palos Verdes area. And our neighborhood just happened to have a lot of people in the movie and television industry. So I grew up going to school and hanging out with the sons and daughters of directors, producers, people in the movie industry. And so I just saw them as ordinary people. Uh, Chuck Norris's first studio was near us, and... Um, I just kind of grew up knowing the movie industry as, as something normal. And uh, then in high school, I got into fantasy and science fiction books. They've always been a big influence. Uh, I read Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit in high school and Ray Bradbury and things. And so uh, I went and saw, you know, those types of movies. My parents were Disney stockholders since the early 60s, and we would go to the stockholders meetings at the studio when Walt Disney would actually be there. So I had met him a couple times, and they were, and then after the meetings, and there were only a few hundred of us then, we would get to wander around the Disney studios, which doesn't have tours, and uh, we'd go to the different, the wood shop and the prop shop, and different sound stages, and one year they were building a small world and a carousel of progress. And Walt was talking to a group of people at the Carousel of Progress, and about six or seven of us stockholders wandered in. He had him turn it on and show and play the song and tell us all about it. He was real proud of that. And so that was, you know, kind of neat. And that was back in the early 60s. So um, anyway, he, he so I, we did see all the Disney movies. They were a big influence on me. And then probably the main influence of science fiction movie would be 2001 A Space Odyssey. I saw that 15 times at the theater over the years. Try to figure it out. <laughs> Finally had to read the book to figure it out. Uh, but I thought that was just an amazing film. I'd see it when it, they kept rerunning it. It would come back in certain years, and I'd go see it. So, And then when Star Trek came out... Um, I was definitely a Star Trek fan and would, um, would see, I, you know, watch the TV show, the original and think, you know, yeah, you know, the communicators my father would say, oh, that'll never happen. It's like, Hey dad, you know, now we have cell phones that are more powerful. <laughs> and so in, in college, I went to Cal Poly Pomona, but most of my, um, social life was at the Claremont colleges and being a big Tolkien Lord of the Rings fan, I met a guy at a bookstore who introduced me to a a group called the Mythopoeic Society, which is still out there, and they would have monthly meetings uh, at the Claremont Colleges, different groups of it. It's a national group, and they'd have a monthly newsletter and a quarterly magazine and uh, conventions and a lot of the the members were fans, and they went to science fiction conventions, and they dragged me with the, with me with them and introduced me to Star Trek cons and Equicons and science fiction conventions. It's like, oh, these are neat. I like this. And so, uh, you know, just blended right into fandom. And that was in college. So um, when Star Wars, you know, first raised its little head and was a few posters in 76 and stuff, I said, okay, this looks interesting and probably worth seeing. and so it wasn't until June, I think the movie, the, fa- the real Star Wars day date is May 25th, not May 4th, I'm sorry, I'm old school, uh, May 25th is when the movie came out, and that's the famous date, so that's still my Star Wars day, but uh, it was sometime in, sometime in June, and friends of ours said, you know, Bob and Lisa, I was married at the time by then, I got married in 1976 to Bob Cowan, before that it was Lisa Sterling, and... Um, so they said, you've got to come and see this. And we saw it at some theaters near the city block center. It's had a million names. They're not there anymore. You can't take pictures. They don't, let, they don't exist. So there was a line. I said, oh, this is interesting, a long line. Uh, because the only lines I'd seen before, maybe for Jaws, but the only lines we would go in, going back in time a little bit, my mother was crazy about the movies, and we, she liked to see what they were called sneak previews. And they were a movie that you went to see, you didn't know what it was. And the cast and crew of the film would often be there. And we'd see Bob Hope and a bunch of different famous people. And So we saw crazy movies from comedies to horror to anything. You didn't know what it was. And then you would filled out forms, how you liked it and stuff. And those were sneak previews. So those were kind of fun. And then I also went to uh, summer camp in Malibu with... Uh, this, and again, Sons and Daughters of Movie Stars and Movie People. And that was in junior high, I met Rachel David, and her father is Saul David, uh, director, and he directed uh, Von Ryan's Express and um, Fantastic Voyage and others. But those two movies, he won Oscars for. And we would go to visit Rachel, because we were just friends up in Benedict Canyon, and when we visited one day, she said, here, she handed me her dad's two Oscars, and I've held huh. two real Oscars, They're heavy, very heavy, but that was kind of fun growing up, holding, oh, in junior high, holding real Oscars. So anyway, back to Star Wars. So we stood in line with every, with all the fans and going, well, maybe this is something neat. And so we went into the theater and shortest movie I had ever seen. I mean, it was like five minutes and it's over and I don't want to go back into the real world. Uh, no, it, it sucked you right in to the Star Wars universe and you you weren't aware of the theater, the seat, nothing. You watched the film. You were in the film. It was part of you. And when it ended, yeah, you did not want to come back to reality. It's like, I knew why the fans saw it over and over and over. Because the real world was like, no, no, no. I want to stay in the Star Wars universe, even though they have some dangers. And I liked the Jawas, and I liked Luke, and my husband really liked Obi-Wan Kenobi. So, um, you know, that's sort of where it started. And then I went back to reality and the Mythopoeic Society and Star Trek, and we looked forward to the next film a lot, but... uh,
1: So was there any particular scene or moment uh, from that first viewing that had the biggest impact on
3: you? uh, Probably the first scene I remember that stays in my head is Luke looking out over the desert with the binoculars. And then I remember the, um, the Jawa sandcaller, I thought was kind of impressive, and the music that went with the Jawas, I just loved.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And I also loved the cantina scene, the original cantina scene, not the remake. Han shot first, otherwise he'd be dead. <laughs> but I, I remember that one. I liked all the Tatooine scenes. I liked uh, when he meets Obi-Wan and the, the scream of the uh, crate Dragon and stuff. The, uh, those are my favorites, the, those, those scenes. Uh, the later ones I liked, but they didn't stand out as much.
1: So when and where did you first see The Empire Strikes Back? And what are your memories of the build-up to that? And how did you feel when you walked out of the theater?
3: Okay, The Empire Strikes Back was my life-changing movie. That changed everything. Uh, the lead-up was fun because I was had a lot of friends that we talked and talked and talked Star Wars for the next three years, and it was a long wait. And people were writing fan fiction and Uh, art and fan things and my friends were sharing fan fiction with me and we were all you know guessing what the next movie was going to be like Uh, we heard of course Irvin Kirshner was going to direct thank god Uh, thank you George for choosing Irv Kirshner he should have done the rest of the movies too (laughs) Uh, and we went and saw it at a theater called the CineDome which isn't there anymore either in Orange County don't blink because the Stores will be gone, the theaters are gone, and it's a parking lot or an apartment building. But uh, this time we did go on opening day with a whole bunch of friends, and it was um, all my mythopoeic friends, and I think it was a matinee. And we went and saw it, and I sat there and watched The Empire Strikes Back, and my mind was completely blown away by Luke Skywalker, and, and the whole Yoda and the whole, uh, every, I liked every bit of the movie. That was just an amazing movie. I didn't want it to end either, and I remember I walked out of the theater and literally grabbed a friend of mine, Doris Robin, you know, literally grabbed her and said, who, because she was more into Star Wars than I was, who plays Luke Skywalker? Who is the actor that plays Luke Skywalker? She says, oh, Mark Hamill, and by the way, and uh, he's, he's, a, you know, he's into fandom and goes to conventions, and I went, oh, you mean he's one of us? Okay. Now I'm even more interested in Mark Hamill. And then Doris also said, oh, I have a friend named Lee Vibber, and she lives in Tustin close by, and she's a fan of Mark Hamill, too. And she introduced us to, to each other, and the rest is history.
1: Before we get to the fan club, so how many times did you end up seeing Empire in the theaters, and how much of that was due to Mark?
3: I think I saw Star Wars maybe six or seven times when it first came out. But Empire, I was hooked, and my son was two years old, and I kept dragging him off to the theater, and he'd fall asleep after a while. But uh, I probably saw uh, Empire Strikes Back at the theater uh, 10 or 11 times or 12. And that summer, because, of course, it played forever, uh, Mark's other movie that he had made, The Big Red One, where he played a World War II soldier with Lee Marvin in a group— that was often at the same theater, sometimes at the same time. So I'd go to the theater and have to make up my mind, flip a coin, Big Red One or Empire? Big Red One or Empire? Usually Empire One, but I think I'd saw the Big Red One five or six times. But it was kind of a choice. Which do I go see? I can see Mark in two movies.
1: (laughs) Yeah, okay. So how did the Hamill fan club form?
3: Uh, What happened was All our friends were rabid Han Solo fans, and they loved to tease Lee and I, who liked the boy next door, Mark Hamill and Luke Skywalker. So we were very lonely Luke Skywalker fans. We were also young mothers with little boys, little toddlers, and and married happily. But Lee and I wanted to meet other Mark Hamill fans so we could talk about Mark Hamill And Luke Skywalker and stuff without being teased. So um, we thought, well, the best way to do that would be to run a fan club for Mark. Now, a lot of fan clubs, at least back in my day in the 60s, 70s, 80s, I don't know about today with the Internet. uh, A lot of fan clubs were run, sort of were started for sometimes the wrong reason. Uh, the usually a girl or the person is enamored by the celebrity, and they want to meet said celebrity. So they figure, okay, I'll run a fan club, and then I'll be able to eventually meet the celebrity.
0: And now to push this convention into hyperspace, the man who put the star in Star Wars, a real burn, the Darth Vader saddle, Luke Skywalker himself, Mark Hamill. <laughs> Thanks, everybody.
2: You know, I'm here today as Luke Skywalker, but I'm also here to talk about Sprint. As you can see, you stand to save up to 17 cents a month over the more dependable providers.
3: I talk about Star Wars! Wars, (laughs) You stupid
2: nerds! He's trying to save you money on long distance! Star
0: Wars, huh? Well, let me ask you this. How many of you have ever dreamed of being in that movie? Well, you're in luck. Because we're gonna act out a scene, and I'll need a volunteer to play Obi-Wan. Kenobi? Mark, 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 pick me! My whole life has been leading to this moment! I like how it has. If anybody's gonna play Obi, it's me! All right, step away, you foolish amateurs. Just keep back, keep out of it. The role is mine. With the acting, and the groupies, and the Luke, Luke, save me. With the lightsaber, and the vwing, vwing, vwing. (laughs) That's not how you vwing! (laughs)
3: So then they meet the celebrity and realize, oh, they're human, and they often are quite disappointed, and then the fan club fizzles. Well, Lee Vibber had already met Mark at a charity event. The goal of our fan club was not to meet Mark Hamill. It was to meet other Mark Hamill fans, and that made it quite different and and a success. But we wanted the fan club to be official. We wanted Mark's permission. So this was in... 80, 81. Yeah, the movie came out in 80. So the the whole year of 81, we contacted every connection we had in fandom, outside of fandom. Maureen Garrett, who ran the official Star Wars fan club out of Lucasfilm, we sort of knew. Um, we would go to conventions. We met Gary Kurtz. And what we did, we'd mocked up We would make a a newsletter up that we'd kind of mock up and a cover letter. And we'd ask these people to get it to Mark Hamill, asking his permission to to do his fan club. And our our husbands, luckily for us, were also behind this because at the time, this was 1981, computers, personal computers were these new scary things. Elie Weber, my friend, had an Atari we had a Radio Shack Model 1, and our husbands really wanted us to learn these scary, beepy things called computers. So we thought, okay, we didn't want to work through the newsletter with a typewriter. Uh, so we thought, okay, we'll, we'll please our husbands and learn these scary computers. And we also learned the printing business, and we learned a whole lot of things from this fan club. So anyway, as time went on, and we were, um, of course, f- hearing anything and everything we could about Jedi. I had connections down in the Imperial Valley, friends that were in the motel business, because my parents had owned a motel for a few years, and I went to junior college in El Centro, of all places. But um, they they learned through connections that, of course, the movie was going to Blue Harvest, and everyone knew it was Return of the Jedi, or Revenge of the Jedi back then. And in fact, our friend's son was in the Boy Scouts. His troop was used to go down into Buttercup Valley, where the sail barge was, and clear all the brush. So they knew where the set was. They also knew that the whole cast was going to stay at the Stardust Hotel in Yuma, uh, about a half hour from the Sand Hills. And she even got me a list of where everyone was staying. And what I knew Mark, what room Mark was staying in <laughs> months before he did. And uh, so I was, you know, and we figured, okay, when they filmed there, it ended up being April, uh, 1982. I was going to go down there and and go on to, you know, go to the set and meet Mark Hamill. Oh boy. So, and I wanted to write it up for the newsletter. So that was kind of our goal. We wanted to get the fan club started by 1982. Uh, And we kept contacting Mark any which way we could. And eventually through secret channels, I got his home address. And uh, so I knew they were leaving January 3rd to film Jedi in England. So in December, I wrote him and said, okay, you know, I know you're leaving January 3rd. And I told him all about what I knew about Yuma and, and you know, filming there. And if he could please call me and, uh, you know, and anyway, to, to get permission to, you know, to get, you know, the fan club because really wanted his permission. So he did. He called me, I think, January 1st at 2 o'clock. And, you know, and I was all ready. So he was so cute. He was so humble. He told me he had gotten everything that we had sent through channels, but he hadn't contacted me because he didn't feel he deserved a fan club. (sighs) So I explained, somebody's going to run a fan club for you with or without your permission, and we could do it best, and we want to do it. So anyway, he said, and you're not going away, are you? "Uh, No. You're really determined, aren't you? Yes. Yes okay, you can run my fan club. Hooray! (laughs) Actually, I think the screams could be heard for three miles, (laughs) but, uh, so anyway, and he, then he asked, okay, Lisa, how do you know so much about where we're staying and everything about Yuma? He says, I didn't know where we were staying. I didn't know what, let alone the room we were staying at. How do you know this? So I explained I had, you know, spies, (laughs) imperial spies, and, uh, Anyway, it became a running joke for the next six years of Mark teasing me, saying, how come you know what I'm doing before I know what I'm doing? I would be working with the quarterly newsletter, and we had to line things up way ahead of time. And I often had to know months or weeks ahead of time what to plan for the newsletter. And I was working with the marketing teams, uh, the directors, producers, the people behind the scenes. They, They tend to tell the actors last. So I did often know what was happening with Mark before he knew what he was doing. And it got to be a fun running joke.
1: So speaking of the newsletter, it was called On the Mark. What would typically go into putting an issue together? And what were the main sections? What was your goal with it?
3: From the very beginning, we wanted to run a very professional fan club and put together a professional newsletter. And luckily, both Lee Viber and I had had prior experience with the club not fan club, but club newsletters, not making them per se, but writing for them, uh, doing reviews for them. With the Mythopoeic Society, they had a monthly newsletter, and I would help with the mailing of it and doing film reviews and book reviews for it. So we had a little experience, but we did have to learn all about, this is before the internet even existed. So we had old-fashioned layout boards, and we'd have to put the magazine together and print it and all on paper, and on these large boards that were about three feet by two feet, and you had to be at, printed, laid out in a certain way, and the photos were separate on the board that was a red ruby called uh, a Cutout. So it was, it was kind of technical, and luckily we had a printer we knew, and he helped educate us on how to print things, and he used metal plates. The, some of the cheaper fanzines or cheaper stuff were done with plastic plates, and that would be blurry. And ours cost more, but again, we wanted quality was job one. That was important to us and, uh, and to his fans. So we called it On the Mark, after the newsletter from Mark Hamill fans. And we even had fun with On the Mark, Get Set, Go. And then we'd had a, the last page, or second to last page was called Run Luke Run. And that was always Star Wars oriented. Um, even when the fan club was about his career and what he was doing, we always knew that the fans were Luke Luke Skywalker fans as well as Mark Hamill fans. So we'd have um, Star Wars art, cartoons, articles, uh, poetry, filk songs and stuff. So we always had a page, or sometimes more related. Of course, with Jedi going to come out, sometimes half the newsletter was on Jedi and plans and filming. So there was, you know, a lot of, of Jedi the first uh, two years and even into 1983. But um, yeah, our husbands were then happy again because we were learning a lot of stuff. We learned about the printing business. We learned about the the mail business because it was quarterly. Um, we eventually got a bulk mail permit. The Methodist PX Society had it, and that was a lot cheaper to mail. But you had to put everything in zip code order. So I learned all the zip codes in the country. And then we'd bundle it and take it to the back of the post office in special containers, and then they would mail it out. Overseas fans was first class, and then people could pay more for first class. I think we started with only 5 bucks a year for membership, which was standard for a lot of fan clubs back then in the 80s. Uh, I think we upped it eventually to eight. We kept it at six to eight pages due to postage. If we were 10, 12 pages, it cost us more. So now with the internet, page length doesn't matter. It mattered back in the old days where we would, you know, print and mail. And often with overseas, postage was more. But what we often did, because it was, it was before PayPal, uh, overseas members would um, have to, you know, go through, jump through hoops to get us money. So what we ended up doing a lot was barter. There was often neat stuff in Germany and Japan and Finland and Australia and New Zealand that the fans would send us, and then we'd send them the fan letter, and we'd barter. It was a win-win situation, and that was lots of fun. And then I think the other thing, of course, is how did we get members? This was, again, before the Internet, before Instagram, before any of that. So there were several ways we gained members. Uh, Of course, there were friends, family, other fans. We were already into fandom. We went to a lot of conventions, so we already knew quite a few people. At conventions, they may still have it today, there was always a table set out at a convention for, you could put freebies on, free flyers for fan clubs, fanzines, uh, anything you kind of wanted that was G-rated, thank you and our club was definitely G rated so we made half sheet flyers and we would put stacks of them out on the freebie table to join the the fan club and we had i think a form too a membership form we would hand out and so that got us new members um back then starlog fantastic films and the movie magazines had classified ads so we would put in they were like 5 10 15 bucks they weren't real expensive so we advertised in the the fan magazines the movie magazines uh, other fanzines, fan clubs, word of mouth. So we started with like a hundred members, like even with our first newsletter, and that skyrocketed pretty fast. We uh, had over a thousand members, I think, at the most after a couple years. Um, I think after our first year, we had maybe four or five hundred members. So you know, and that qualified us for a bulk mail permit. We had to mail at least four hundred items out so uh we always had a good number of, of fans there are we're they you know our goal was met we did meet mark hamill fans and there were lots of them yay uh, we met quite a few in person that uh, at conventions and other things like that so that was uh definitely a success
1: so the second issue of on the mark has some great coverage of the filming of the sail barge scenes how did all that come about and what was it like going out there
3: So I knew about Jedi being filmed. My rebel spies, my friends in Yuma, you know, gave me the dates. And we knew when. So my husband and I, about maybe a week or two after filming started, we went down there. And uh, we stayed in Yuma as well, but not at the Stardust. It was booked. (laughs) But we did... You, it was. They had a cafe, a regular public cafe. And one of the things we would do is go and have breakfast there. And the cast and crew, Lucas and Kazanjan, you know, and most of the behind-the-scenes people would be often eating breakfast. And we'd be in a booth, and I'd be eavesdropping. And I heard lots of little bits about the filming and, and uh, technical things and what they were going to film. It's like, oh, cool. And then I think the, one of the morning after breakfast, we were wandering in the, the gift shop. It was a large hotel. Uh, and Carrie Fisher was there wandering around looking around and so I got to talk to her and meet with her and I teased her and said you know let mark know his uh, fan club person is is here I'll see him tomorrow <laughs> so actually we did so we, we knew where how to get there through my rebel spy friends and one of the clues it was off the 8 freeway and in uh in the center of the 8 freeway was a parking area the roads were separate the fans would park there and the dune buggy people, these sand dunes are famous for dune buggies. But, and so you can't drive a regular car on the sand dunes, you'll sink about a foot and be stuck. You have need a, a dune buggy. But for filming there, and you couldn't see the set from the road, you had to go up and over some very high sand dunes and down into this valley called Buttercup Valley. And so they didn't, they couldn't put in, take everyone out on little dune buggies. So what they did, they had these very large water trucks and they would wet down the sand and make a wet road. And that would pack down the sand and you could drive a normal car on the road or even a truck or, you know, all the equipment needed to build this set up and over the hills and into the Buttercup Valley. So if you knew where to look, you could see this wet road. So we spotted it. And uh, so we went on the wet road and uh, up and over the hills. And you come over this high dune and look down into this kind of round valley. And there was something very different looking. It was a giant Java sail barge. And and we kept going. And they have a large chain link fence around it to keep Dune Buggy and other enthusiasts and fans at, at bay. But it was, you know, close enough. You could get great pictures. The front of it was the sail barge, and that overlooked the Sarlacc pit. And then the whole back end was open, and it was all wood, and that's where they would uh, eat and have offices and and escape the, the wind and the snakes and the heat and the dunes and the sand. Sand got into everything. And one of the things out there on those sand dunes are sidewinders. And they had a whole team of people in dune buggies that their job was to keep the sidewinders at bay because sidewinders are looking for shade, too. And they would like to wander down into the set, and, you know, they're poisonous. So they're luckily, these are cowardly, nice little snakes, and you could, they could have snake sticks, and they didn't kill any of them. They just moved them out onto the sand dunes and away from the set. So anyway, we drove down and uh, didn't see any sidewinders. And we're walking around the perimeter, and and the uh, the cast and crew would come up to the fence and ask, you know, you know, what you wanted and who you were and stuff. And so I and I said, Kenny Baker wandered up, chatted with him, and uh, Harrison Ford would occasionally come up to the fence. And uh, not that day, but uh, when because when you know they then the fans were were few. There were just a handful when we were there because you had to know where it was. But uh, as filming went on, more fans found it. But they were very nice and quiet, except Harrison Ford fans tended to um, make the mistake of they'd see Harrison walking toward them and they'd squeal. Harrison Ford does not like squealy girl fans. He'd turn around and walk away. But say uh, he wasn't there that day or out there. So anyway, um, they're they taking a break for lunch. Anyway, Mark does, you know, I spot this guy in Jedi Black uh, walking up going, ooh. You know, I recognize Mark going, he's wearing Jedi black. He is a Jedi. Cool. Anyway, he came up to the fence, and, and I ended up sitting, we both sat down on the fence and talked about the fan club and, and uh, things and, and the filming, and they had, um, I forgot what scenes. They were filming scenes on the skiff uh, over the pit, and so, yeah, because we weren't allowed to walk around on the other side because they were filming some shots with the edges of the Sarlacc pit using the sand dunes in the background. So uh, we kind of stuck in one area. And so you could, but they, you know, you could take pictures as long as you, they weren't toward where they were filming. And a lot of fans, you know, did. We only had kind of regular cameras, so I didn't get any fabulous shots. But And I remember we'd, I'd put the camera away when I was talking to Mark because it just didn't seem professional to to take pictures. Plus, I, you know, I think he mentioned, you know, I wasn't supposed to take any pictures of him in his Jedi outfit which is cool. i was always been on enough movie sets during my life to know that you follow the rules. And, uh, but anyway, that was really neat. And, uh, so yeah, we say we mostly talked about the second issue and he liked the first one and, you know, wished us well and, and stuff. So, uh, and talked about the, a bit about the filming, and, and he was still amazed how much I knew about, you know, where it was and how to find it and, and stuff, because not a lot of fans had figured it out yet. But like I said, I had, I said, well, I have good rebel spies, <laughs> good sources, you know, through the whole six years we did it.
1: Wow, that is a crazy experience. So you still had a year or so until the movie came out. So What was going on with the newsletter and Mark up to that point?
3: Um, yes, there was a gap, a year gap. And when actors are finished filming, they, you know, aren't they need to do other things. And I think he, he did a little movie called Britannica Hospital, some little TV things. But the main thing, one of his dreams was always to do stage plays. Uh, he played Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart on the road show of Peter Schaefer's drama, Amadeus, the play. And, you know, he had the lead. So that's pretty good for, you know, your dreams coming true. And he was playing the lead all around the country, which was great for Mark's fans because they would, you know, contact us or say, you know, how do we meet Mark? That was the number one question the fans asked. How do we meet Mark? Well, luckily, he was doing stage plays most of the years we did the fan club. So the answer was easy. Go see the play. Go uh Go to the back doors after the play. The cast and crew tend to come out and sign autographs, and Mark was very much among them. He was always great with his fans. He would sign autographs for, you know, quite a while. He loved seeing his fans. He loved talking to his fans, and he'd sign just about anything, you know, Star Wars and the play stuff. So, you know, that worked great. And when the play came to Los Angeles, uh, I think it started in Chicago. It played in quite a few different cities all over the country, San Francisco. So when it was in Los Angeles, then Lee and I went to it, and I think we saw it twice. And one of the times we went uh, was a matinee, and we went to lunch with Mark between uh, the play. And uh, so the newsletter was quite full with uh articles on the play and where to see it, where it was, Yeah. Denver, Detroit, Toronto, Boston, Philadelphia. So he was all over the place. And so that that kept the fans happy and busy and gave us things to write up. We had wonderful fans that uh, helped us do this newsletter. We did not do it by ourselves. We had a lot of people helping we had talented fans who would send in artwork they'd send in poems they would send in articles of I met Mark that was one of our things one of our other columns was something we called the closet Mark did a lot of TV shows before he became Luke Skywalker and so those would rerun at times cuz this was before again internet and and DVDs you know videos were still something kind of new and so they would catch uh, a rerun of some episode Mark did on some TV show and then they would uh, write it up and we would try to track down a photo if we could or we'd even have one of our many artists do a piece of art from it uh, and we'd run that in the closet. Mark thought that was cute, the title. and Anything we could, that would be related to Star Wars or Mark at conventions or anything like that, we would uh, put in the newsletter uh, and one of the special things that happened to us, because yes, we did send newsletters to the Lucasfilm fan club, and Lucasfilm thought they were great, and uh, we would send six, seven, eight copies to Lucasfilm, so a lot of people up there read it. They were very uh, positive, they thought it was just terrific, and so they were somewhat helpful. Um, so one of the things we got to do in the fall of 82, that's months and months and months before Jedi came out in 83, we got special permission from Howard Kazangian to publish the very first photo from Jedi of Mark Hamill ever in any fanzine, any publication, anywhere in the world. We were number one in November, 82. It's a close-up of Mark in, in a, a Jedi uh, in the, the gray outfit he wore uh, to uh, Jabba's place. And if you look carefully at it, you can see a little bit of black, but they were careful not to give anything away. So, but we got special permission to publish that. And we always thought that was kind of a neat, neat thing, a neat coup that we were number one in the world of the first photo of, from Jedi ever published. That
1: is quite an exclusive. Um, Okay. So we're getting closer to Jedi coming out. How did you end up seeing it?
3: So 1983 finally arrived, the longest three years of the, I think of our lives and Jedi was finally going to come out. Oh, good. Then it was finally Return of the Jedi, after revenge, and we did uh, take advantage of all the hype to uh, gain new members and get the word out and stuff and keep putting out newsletters and getting more connections with, with Lucasfilm and the people there up there. So one of the perks of having the newsletter is a week before it came out to the public, uh, Lee Vibber and I and our husbands were among many special people invited to Fox Studios to see the movie ahead of time. Oh, boy. And uh, we stood in a line with, with, you know, the the cast wasn't there. A lot of the crew members and a lot of Fox people and a lot of people connected with the movie. They were running. They did quite a few Fox previews. We were among there was, you know, we weren't the only, it was the only, wasn't it was in the studio. So and they did several of those. But anyway, we got to see it ahead of the regular fans at the theater. And it was, yeah, we, we thought it was great. Blew us away, uh, you know, tears at the end. And uh, I didn't mind the Ewoks. We knew they'd filmed it up in the, the forest part of it in uh, the pickup scenes at Lucasfilm in Marin County. So it was fun watching it, knowing so much behind the scenes of the movie and kind of what to look for. And, um, uh, but you know, overall we liked it. We liked all of Mark's roles. The scenes with the uh, big laser battle with the emperor. Wow. That, those were amazing. And then with Vader picking up the empire and tossing him down. Great. You know, we all cheered. There was lots of cheers of that one. And, uh, you know, overall it was, it was good. I liked the scene when he tells Leia, you know, you're my sister. That, that's in, in my mind forever. So, uh, those were the various things I remember, and we came out of there. We couldn't be too hyped up because we were supposed to be, you know, professionals at the theater, but one of the fun things we did was being married with kids. We couldn't go and camp out in line uh, at the theaters in Hollywood because it just wasn't going to happen, but we did go up to Hollywood forget what theater, but where the main theater where they were going to be opening it, and the fans are all in line. Egyptian, yeah. We walked the line and handing out flyers of our fan club, of course. And one of the things was the the biography by uh, Pollock of George Lucas had just come out, so we went to the bookstore and bought that and. What was amazing was a lot of the fans in line, and Maureen Garrett was among them, uh, She, they, they had already seen the movie like us. They had been to previews and premieres, but they, were, they wanted the stand-in-line camping-out experience. So that was kind of surprising. And then our own, we did go see it uh, in Orange County on opening day at the CineDomes theaters again, which don't exist anymore, but uh, this time... Oh, we did a whole kind of our own parking party. Uh Lee and I who we were stay-at-home moms, so we could hang out and there was a group of us, four or five or six, and we held places in line. We saw it three times the first day with different groups, and there would be ten to fifteen in each group. But Lee and I were there the whole day. We had picnics and coolers and camped out there at the in line with the fans. And gave out fan flyers and talked to Star Wars the whole day. It was fun. And munched on stuff. So we did see it three times with three different groups of people that day. And so that was kind of our in-line experience. And that was fun.
1: So Jedi is out of theaters. Did you think that Star Wars would keep going on after that? Or what was your your focus from that point on?
3: Okay, Star Trek fans did not let Star Trek die They've, they forced it to continue, and so us Star Wars fans hoped the same thing would happen. And the fans were going to continue with Star Wars fan fiction and, and costumes and things at conventions no matter what. So we all hoped it would continue, and I think the book started to come out after Jedi, so we knew Star Wars was going to continue in book format with real authors as well as fanzine authors, but a lot of fanzine authors became Star Wars writers, Kathy Tires being among them. Uh, so yeah, we hope the you know, Star Wars realm and World would continue. We all wanted to play in it forever. So you know, continuing it was uh, definitely a good idea for, for us. Um, Of course, we were still running the Mark Hamill Fan Club, and that was our number one uh, interest at the time. And Mark was still doing a lot of stage plays, so we kept up with his career and covered the various plays he did. I attended some, um, not all. They were all back east then because they weren't road shows like uh, Amadeus was. They were either in New York or Boston or... uh, one in the summer was Harrigan and Hart in Connecticut. And the Hamels, uh, uh, I went back there and worked with the theaters, and we got lots of Star Wars fans and Hamel fans to go see the play. It was Summerstock, and that was fun. Mark Hamill had to learn to sing and dance. It was early, about early vaudeville and early musicals, and it was a really neat play, Harrigan and Hart. You know, Mark had to educate and learn stuff and get his hair curled for the ac- role of Tony Hart. And so we did lots of newsletters on that. And we just kept following his career. He would do whatever he was doing. We would be involved in voice, early voice work that he liked to do and um, things about him and his kids. When, when uh, was it, Griffin was born, we sent out uh, baby notices about Griffin being born with their permission. And I had to say, we had all these talented artists and we would put their art in the newsletter. And we had quite a few fans saying, I love the art. You know, I wish we could get, you know, a real, you know, good print of the scenes. So we thought, okay, good idea. We decided to uh, put out a notice for our artists to um, do a portrait of Mark from a play, a film, Star Wars, whatever. And we did a whole art portfolio that I think we sold for $20. And we featured the various art from all over, Australia, England, uh, Japan, the USA, Canada. So, you know, we are definitely a worldwide fan club with worldwide talent which were, you know, neat people. So we did the art portfolio, and it sold well. We, we, also, we always ran the pan, fan club for profit, uh, hopefully making enough money to put out the very next issue, which we always did. The, the art portfolio helped. The newsletter had no advertising in it because we knew it would fill up with advertising. So we decided to a once-a-year ad magazine we call Green Harvest after Blue Harvest and that's where the whole thing was: ads for fanzines, other fan clubs, uh, anything fanish that people wanted to run ads for. And we, they, I forgot what we charged—not much, like a few bucks for the ads. And then that would go out with a special issue once a year that cost us some more postage. But you know, that that took care of kind of advertising, and because we would run ads and and you know we would advertise and other people's fanzines. That gave them a chance to you know have access to our fans, our members. And one of the thing, also thing that happened to me that was special, in I think 85, always through the through the Star Wars films, Lucasfilm handled the fan mail for the fans who wanted to write for, for autographs. And um, so after Jedi, they said, they told the stars, we're not handling your fan mail anymore. Uh, you'll have to line up with companies or have someone handle your fan mail. So because Lee and I are already running Mark's fan club, they approached us, and Mark approached us, and we, we anyway, all, we all came to a meeting and said, uh, "Yeah, we'll I'll take over doing his fan mail," which was neat, and I got paid for it because uh, it cost money. And uh, fan mail is important for all actors, especially because um, they, you know, fans want autographs, and it's a good way to, to get them and to uh, and to also. Fan is always short for fanatic. Okay. of fans are wonderful, terrific, wonderful people. Definitely Mark's fans are great. And there's that 0.1% who are fanatics, as John Lennon found out. And they can be dangerous. And often they write fan mail. And the fan mail can be odd. And so fan mail should be looked at and read because you can often find the bad guys and stop them before they do something bad. And so, anyway, luckily that didn't happen with us, but uh, it's, it's, that's why fan mail is important, to, to reach fans, and um, it's just something that Hollywood has always done.
2: Mr. Hemmel, Mr. Mayor,
0: come on! Who are you? Homer Simpson, Nerdbuster, and I'm getting you out of here.
1: I can't, Homer. I twisted my ankle. You
0: guys go on without me.
1: Never. So I was kind of growing up at that time where Star Wars was not exactly in the public eye, but you were at the big 10th anniversary convention. Is that
0: right?
3: Yes, the Starlog, Starlog presented uh, the official 10th anniversary tribute to George Lucas and the galaxy far, far away, a big convention. And not only were Lee and I and our husbands there, we were part of the program we presented a slideshow, no PowerPoint yet. It's, Mm -hmm. it was still slideshows with carousels, but we did a slideshow on Mark's career and, uh, with lots and lots of slides from his, the earliest days we could find. And Mark was doing a stage play in New York, so he couldn't be there, but Mary Lou, his wife, and their two kids at the time, their two sons were there and came to our slideshow, which was kind of neat. And it was a awesome, awesome convention with the know, all Star Wars fans. And and it was just really special to be part of the program. So it was a a really, really kind of nice event.
1: So the Hamill fan club, how did that end up kind of wrapping up? And where did you go from there?
3: Yeah, all good things must come to an end. Actually, the fan club didn't quite end. We passed it on to another person, I think in Salt Lake City, Uh, That kind of continued it, but didn't keep a good schedule. Keeping a schedule was important to us. Um, And Mark was taking time off from doing much of anything. And then from there went into voice work. And it's hard to do a newsletter without pictures and info and things and news happening. So we kind of decided, yeah, that was time to to end it and pass it on. And because roughly at the same time, the, the Lucasfilm fan club, the original fan club had ended, And Lucasfilm kept getting, you know, people who wanted an official fan club, kind of like we wanted to run Mark's official fan club. So they contracted with uh, a company in Aurora, Colorado that did Star Trek fan clubs uh, run by Dan Madsen. And they said, you know, would you do an official fan club magazine and, and stuff for us? And so that worked. And then they basically contacted me. I was in the second issue. And I was uh, became a regular staff writer and went kind of transitioned into writing for the Lucasfilm uh, Fan Club magazine.
1: What types of articles were you writing, and did you get to cross paths with some interesting folks? I'm sure you did.
3: Uh, yes, yeah, some of my articles were assignments that they assigned for me to write. And, um, they were, of course, into whatever Lucasfilm was, was doing. And at the time, Lucasfilm was working on two films, Willow, which was filming in Australia, and Tucker, The Man and His Dream, which was filming in San Francisco. So I was assigned or volunteered actually to, to do Tucker. Which was about a 1948 car. I tease my friends, I traded in an X-Wing fighter for a 1948 vehicle.
0: And we are going to build that car, the one we dreamed of, exactly the one we wanted. Paramount Pictures presents a Lucasfilm production of a Francis Coppola film. Big business closes the door and the little guy with a new idea, we're sabotaging everything that the country stands for.
1: If they can make headlines with lies, we can make bigger headlines with the truth.
0: He is dead. Hold Hold that tiger! Jeff Bridges is Tucker. The true story of one man and his dream.
3: And it was filming in San Francisco, so I was up on the set. George Lucas was there with his then-girlfriend, Linda Ronstadt, and Francis Ford Coppola was directing, and I got to interview him, and Jeff Bridges was the main star, Preston Tucker, and uh, a lot of real Tucker cars were up there, and a lot of actual Tucker owners were driving them, because they're a kind of unique car to drive, and uh, so I, I ended up getting into the entire world of Tucker, became a Tucker expert. Ended up taking over the Tucker Fan Club, which was a monthly newsletter that I got paid to do, and gave Tucker talks. I ended up marketing the Tucker movie to the automotive world. I wrote 17 different articles on the movie to 17 different automotive magazines. Uh, I set a record at Paramount for requesting the most photographs, over 100 for, for you know, ever. I think the record may still stand. And I used every single photograph in my various articles, including the monthly Tucker Club newsletter. And so I kind of lived the life of of Tucker from 88 to 93, pretty much. And then other articles were on Indiana Jones 3, which was also coming out. I did a retrospect articles uh, looking back at. I did an interview with Howard Kazanjian that was great fun at Universal. And I interviewed Steve Sansweet when he was still in Los Angeles. We were already friends, and we did a, a videos and things there. Uh, we interviewed him also for books. I interviewed a lot of book writers. Uh, Kathy Tyers, I mentioned, who was a friend of mine. And so kind of whatever, that came, whatever came my way, I jumped at. I wasn't in every issue, but I was in it from uh, 88 to 93, or when they changed to the magazine to the Star Wars Insider. And one of the fun things that got to happen was 1993, of course, was the 10th anniversary of Return of the Jedi. And a fan group in Australia got to do the official convention for the anniversary. And so I got to fly, His and I were flown to Australia, to Melbourne, where it was in June of 93 to represent the fan club. And that was kind of neat. And it was a lot of work, though. I had slideshow after slideshow after slideshow (laughs) that I gave and different talks and ended up being one of the judges for a costume contest. And it was more work than I expected. Lots of fun, but it was surprising how much work there was, especially when you have jet lag.
1: (laughs) So moving forward quite a bit, you hear that Mark Hamill is coming back as Luke Skywalker in these new era films. How did you react to that? And uh, when you saw them, what did you think?
3: Um, I was very, very happy to hear that. Uh, I enjoyed the, the, new, the new trilogy. The first one that came out was, was really good. I think that's when he had a small role, The Force Awakens. So we were looking forward to the last one and uh, The Last Jedi. And poignant, but very well done. I'm not sure about the scene with him milking the strange critter on the islands. That was uh, unusual. But the rest of the movie I thought was good. I, I thought the, uh, the scene where he's the hologram, the battle, oh, that was awesome. That was really, 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 really neat. And then him going into the force, Luke going into the force like Obi-Wan did was, was well done. And so uh, I, I really enjoyed, uh, I call them the Disney Star Wars movies. And all the ones that Disney has been putting out, I, I've enjoyed. I like Solo more than I guess a lot of people. I like that. I like the new actors. I think Mark did a very good job being, uh, you know, I don't think it was that hard for him to get back into the Luke Skywalker robes. And uh, although he was playing kind of a Luke Skywalker, Obi-Wan Kenobi crossover, but it works. And I am looking forward to seeing him playing Talus in uh, Nightfall.
1: So to wrap things up, how have Star Wars and obviously Mark Hamill shaped your outlook on life?
3: Well, I should say being a Mark Hamill fan uh, definitely changed my life. It gave me a 20-year career I wouldn't have had otherwise. And so, you know, in that way, the, the force was definitely with me.
1: Thank you so much, Lisa, for taking the time and inviting me down to your home. Uh, This has just been a great day, and I really appreciate it.
3: Well, thank you, Stephen. It was fun, and uh, we had a good time, and, and I'm glad I did it.
0: Tell me, how did you uh, get the part of Luke Skywalker in the first place?
2: I wish I had an adorable anecdote to tell you, that I was in a restaurant and George Lucas, the director, was having a meal, and he leaped up and said, there's Luke Skywalker. I auditioned? No. Unfortunately,
1: (laughs) I auditioned like anybody else. And
0: and you got the part? Yeah.
1: As it turns out, it was my next guest that had uh, originally introduced me to Lisa several years ago. I've known David Carr for quite some time, uh, having first met him through the California vintage Star Wars collecting community, uh, which he's been a big part of from the beginning, and I was glad to have the chance to record his story that same day. David brings up a a couple of theaters he visited as a young fan, and I just wanted to give a quick word on those. First, the Incline Village Cinema near Lake Tahoe. Uh, There isn't all that much to say other than the good news that it's uh, still in operation. I'm really fond of these smaller, family-owned theaters that one often finds in these little mountain towns still surviving off the beaten path. This single-screen spot with its rustic, ski lodge-style exterior and signage looks very 70s, and probably hasn't changed much, if at all. Also mentioned are the AMC theaters that once stood adjacent to the Puente Hills Mall in the City of Industry, which is just north of Orange County. The Puente 6 opened in December 1974, next to the mall that would become famous as doubling as the Twin Pines Mall from a, a certain 1980s time-traveling blockbuster.
0: Oh my god.
3: They found me. I don't know how, but they found me.
0: What part, Marty? Who? Who? Who do you think? The
1: a few years later, AMC would open up the apparently slightly nicer but smaller Puente 4 across the street. I couldn't find any photos of the Puente 4, which is where David remembers going, but I'll include a photo of the Puente 6 marquee in the show notes. Its bright red signage is just period perfect. Both of these smaller cinemas were closed in 1997 and supplanted by the new Puente Hills AMC-20 Megaplex and demolished soon thereafter. May they be forever remembered.
2: Alright, here's David Carr. So my name is David Carr. Uh, born and raised in Southern California. Born in the early '70s. So pretty young when, um, right when on Star Wars came up. Enjoyed being outdoors. Enjoyed uh, playing with lots of toys from the '70s. Um, and so it's kind of right there at the cusp of the action figures and things like that. So I don't remember Star Wars as much growing up at first because I was pretty young. I think I was at least four, going on five. But I definitely remember talk about it, and kind of, uh, okay, there's something going on out there. And as a young kid, I think seeing things that, hey, this is something that's popular, and so uh, parents talking about that, or toys, or things like that.
1: So did you go to the movies often
2: when you were a kid, and were there any that stood out to you in your memory? We went to the movies periodically. I wouldn't say we went lots, but I think definitely um, when there are major films that would come out, we would see them. Growing up in the late 70s and in 80s, uh, there's a lot of great films. I remember, obviously, Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi growing up. But others like E.T. was a huge one for me. The Indiana Jones movies was the ones you knew about Harrison Ford being in Star Wars. It's awesome to go see him in, in the Indiana Jones movies. Um, the Back to the Future movies. And, and it was interesting to see a lot of these movies that were trilogies and things that I'd want to go back and see again. So to me, that was what was in, it was interesting. You know, I didn't really have a lot of memories of going to see Star Wars because I was younger. Um, I think we probably I, my parents told me we went to a drive in back when drive ins were real popular uh, and you could see multiple films, um, which I think, you know, I haven't gone to a drive in a long time. I think there might be one or two around. It's actually a different way of experiencing uh, movies that you don't think about as much anymore today, but it's pretty common to see, like, double features. I-, I do remember going to see, I think, Star Wars. I can't remember which one it was. And it was, like, the second billing. And you'd have to wait through the first movie to get to the second one. <laughs> so that, w- that was, uh, I remember kind of like, oh, man, when are we going to see that one? Um, but if you've got two movies that you really like, that was always fun. I actually can remember seeing Empire Strikes Back in the theater. My family and I would go up to um, Incline Village up in Lake Tahoe every year. And it was probably in the summertime. This is a one-screen theater in the little... Kind of the theater is actually still there, but I can still remember as a young kid seeing that and uh, probably I think sticking out to me is maybe the adats uh, the walkers, or the snow scene, something big, or Yoda and, and Dagobah, something very different. Um, so I do remember that, that vividly stands out in my mind as far as Empire Strikes Back. As a young kid, you know, I relied on my parents to go take me to the theater, so it wasn't like we got to see multiple viewings of these. I, we might have seen Empire Strikes Back in the theater another time. I do have more clear memories of Return of the Jedi, and when that came out, at that time it was 83, so I was in fifth grade at that time, so you're talking to everybody, and you're you're getting excited, and of course, you know, they started with the action figures, and I, like I said earlier, I was big into the action figures, and you knew that the, they're in the back of the cards, there's Ewoks that were blocked out, which were these black spots. There was all the speculation as to what, what are these characters, you know? And, and so for me and my, my friends at the time, there was a lot of speculation leading up to seeing Return of the Jedi. And I remember that scene where there's Darth Vader and Luke together in the elevator, um, going up to the emperor and, and like, why the heck is Luke with Vader, you know? (laughs) And I, re- I can actually still remember when we went to see it. I think it was probably right after school one day. My mom taking me and my friends and going. And there was a big line. This is when they would you know have a big line around the movie theater. And uh, getting so excited and all talking to each other. And it was like, who's going to go there first? Because you're with all your friends. And who's going to see it first? And what are you going to see? And, and so I do remember getting to go experience that with my friends and my mom and seeing Return of the Jedi. I remember that first viewing. I, I'm sure we went back and probably saw it a couple of different times with other people. So that was one of my first memories of going to the theater multiple times to see a movie. It was just not that common. Most people would only go see a movie once. That's it. We're not paying anymore. <laughs> you know, uh, you saw it in the theater. And so that was re- really unique to be able to go back and see it uh, more than one time. So,
1: Do you have any vivid memories of that theater where
2: you saw Jedi? So um, this was an AMC theater. It was in 20 Hills which is an interesting area. Um, I'll get back to in a minute. But Pony Hills, is in, they didn't have the big theaters back then, the mega complexes. One theater that actually had six screens, and then another smaller theater that had four screens. And they were just two separate buildings. They weren't actually attached or anything. So you never knew where the movies were. But this was in the four-screen theater. And again, uh, like I mentioned earlier, we had to line up literally at the front doors, and they looked at the line around. They lined it around the, the whole building. There was a parking lot kind of all around it. So it was just an experience of being out there with all these people. Uh, you couldn't do advanced tickets, right? Like today, where you can buy tickets ahead of time. You had to go there. You had to wait in line, get your ticket. Do you know if you're even gonna get in that showing? Hopefully, you are in the right spot. <laughs> uh, and again, we were going after school, so we just everybody was kind of going after there and trying to go on the day it opened. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it was it was kind of nuts trying to get in there. And you know, a lot of kids my similar age and time, everybody kind of waiting and excited, and it's just this energy. Um, but the theater, like I said, the theater itself, it's no longer there anymore. Um, it's changed and they've redeveloped the area, but it was right off the, the 60 freeway in, in Pawnee Hills. And what's interesting is that actual mall is where they filmed a Back to the Future scene. Um, if you ever see that scene where they're running around in the parking lot and with Doc, that, that mall is where they filmed it, not too far away. So again, Back to the Future kind of stuck in my head as one of the films uh, growing up.
0: Let's see if you bastards can do 90
1: so with jedi was there any particular scene that stands out as being impactful and how was the crowd what was their reaction like
2: Gosh, there's quite a few different memories in Return of the Jedi. I remember at the beginning of the film, when Luke gives away R2-D2 and C-3PO, I'm like, what is going on here? How could you be giving up R2-D2 and C-3PO in that message? And obviously, it's all the setup. So that was one I think everyone was like, what's going on here?
0: With your wisdom, I'm sure that we can work out an arrangement which will be mutually beneficial and enable us to avoid any unpleasant confrontation. As a token of my goodwill, I present to you a gift. These two droids. What did he say? Both are hardworking and will serve you well. This can't be. Arto, you're playing the wrong message.
2: Another one, I think, um, my kids, my age at the time, we always like things that are fast, and the, the scenes with like the speeder bike. Going through and and the the battles there. Luke using his lightsaber against the the laser shots was really cool. And I think for kids, we were excited about talking about that. I think later in life, I was really surprised how dull everything was about that. And you see the behind the scenes and they talk about this was like the boringest thing. But at the time, I think that was super exciting. Um, I didn't mind the Ewoks. I think I was totally fine with that. I liked the interaction and and the battles. And uh, I think just seeing everything unfold with luke and darth vader and his father and i mean from the from when they you know he surrenders himself over and going through all that i think to me that was um it really stood out in my mind and figuring out how this is all going to play out and i even remember particularly the music in the end scene in the battle scene in the throne room and it's just how the climactic side of that um I mean, John Williams is, I'm a big music person too, saying so all throughout the movies, just an amazing way that he, he weaves the themes in there. And really, it would be a completely different movie without the, the music. Um, and I think, quite honestly, I still had all the soundtracks as a kid. I liked all the soundtracks. I would actually play the music when I would play with my toys sometimes. I would actually recreate things that way. So the music, even after I left the theater, was something that you know I, I always was looking for and enjoyed. And I think, like I said, my friends and I, we were all very much, of course, into the action figures. And so all of those things, I mean, seeing a biker scout for the first time, that was new the emperor royal guard i mean there were so many different characters so i think the combination of we'd seen some of these figures before the movie came out they were starting to and so that that also built anticipation about where are these guys going to show up in the movie and so uh those are some of the different things that were exciting and again the energy and my friends were were, we were excited to be able to see those and, and talk about did you see this and that and so that was a good time with Jedi you already had pieces of the
1: movie before you saw it. Uh, did you have any interest in the merchandise from the earlier movies and what was it like as a young collector and when did you become seriously interested in collecting?
2: Uh, yeah, I think honestly, you know, as a kid growing up, we saw more of the you know the toys and the and the merchandise and memorabilia and as we all know now Lucas was very smart to to license all that and Kenner jumped on board. So I think honestly, those were my memories stronger uh, leading certainly leading up to Empire Strikes Back because now the toys have started to come out in '78 and that kind of carried through and so I would recreate scenes you know um, and, and and I remember the the carrying case and you could flip over the carrying case and put your figures on the on the stands and create them um, so definitely i have vivid memories of of all the 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 figures and and the toys growing up i remember getting the death star for christmas the playset, and trying to carry it around and um and so this was i basically i'm recreating the movie right now that i can't see it but i can remember parts and so so that was exciting for me and, and looking at the, the, the toy catalogs or the back of the figures and seeing like all the things that are out there, whether I had them or not, you know, it was just exciting to think about I'm creating this universe. And I think that's why so many kids in our generation that grew up with these, we didn't have the internet and other things that was, it was, this is, we were creating things. And so that stuck with me. Um, and I think, you know, that's why they are so popular throughout all the films and you could uh, look forward to different things coming out of the movies and okay, are they going to release this so Empire Strikes Back comes out a Snowspeed or an AT-AT and for me, I was all in even after Return of the Jedi ended I kept continuing on so I, my, I actually really started as a collector I still have my original figures that I had as a kid when I was 4 or 5 many of those and I even and all through the Power of the Force line afterward so I my, my enthusiasm never waned <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I, I kept kept engaged that way so
1: so being a southern california kid I'm, I'm sure you were well aware of the star tours craze at disneyland what was that like
2: uh yeah definitely um so i was so excited when star tours was coming out and uh, to see something star wars continue like i mentioned earlier i was all in i was still following the, the figures and things I remember going to Star Tours the first time I went on there. Getting there with a friend, going early, early, right before the Disneyland, you know, essentially open. They let you go down to the end of Main Street, and then they opened up, and you basically bolted <laughs> for Star Tours because you, if you did not get there right away, it literally would be hours and hour hours wait. And again, this was neat because it was new, something new. Not just the, I mean, the ride going in the ride, but they filmed stuff. It was like seeing a new aspect a window into star wars so to me uh that was super exciting to be able to see that but you got immersed into the world you know so you're literally you're walking in and the way that you know disney does this so great you're walking in and you're you're seeing rtd2 and c3 people working on the star speeder and you're they're you know having you you're the line mingle through the whole thing and so it really was it exciting to just kind of just stay there and look and take everything in and like, oh, I'm actually a part of the Star Wars world. So to me, that was great. And then, of course, when you're done and you get to go through this great adventure, you walk out. And, of course, they drop you into the 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 uh, you know the gift shop. And so, again, to me, there was at that point that you looked at us, there wasn't a lot of other Star Wars stuff out. At that point, a lot of things had been gone away. Star Wars was popular. But here it was things to, to um, go in. And this is actually where I got into the Star Wars role playing game. West End Games, they had come out with books, so there's books and things that I could immerse myself and learn more about the universe at that point that I didn't really see anywhere else as a kid. You know, you're just like, where where would else I find stuff? It's not in the toy store or anything more. So I think to me, Disney had really created an anchor of Star Wars and really kept, honestly, Star Wars going because Star Wars, Star Trek has been there all along through today and and through maybe called the dark times of <laughs> the Star Wars universe. So uh, great memories there. <music>
1: So how has Star Wars maintained an influence on your life? And what part did those cinematic experiences play in that?
2: Uh, Great question. The Power of Myth by um, Joseph Campbell was really influential. I saw that interview with Bill Moyer, and I know his interaction with looking at the Star Wars story really stood out to me. And uh, that left an impression about how we use myths to explain our lives. And and Star Wars is a myth. It's a a storytelling in a unique way. You know, there's this dynamic of good and evil, and we all have a desire for these stories to help you know, explain life and what's important. and And I think there's a redemption element which I appreciate. And even one of my focus characters I collect is Kenobi, and, and realizing that you know that he struggled, yet he still found redemption. and He tried to make things right. Um, and learning from that. So to me, those are the, the things that have kind of carried through in my life is, you know, wanting good to triumph over evil and the idea of, of, of redemption. And that's that continues to play a, a, a importance in my life. And I think George Lucas hit it on the head. He was a really cra- crafted, amazing story with uh, such a group of talented individuals that we probably will never see in that mix together that came together. So I was real fortunate to be able to experience that. Um, And uh, it'll always be a part of me. (laughs) ¶¶
1: Well, thanks again, David, for coming on the podcast. I I really appreciate spending the time with
2: you, and it's nice to be able to do it in person. Thanks, Dee, for having me. It was really fun to reminisce and remember my uh, Star Wars memories and uh, spend some time with you today.
1: Thanks again to both Lisa Cowan and David Carr for sharing their stories with me and and much more. Lisa was kind enough to show David and I a a trove of material that she'd saved from her on-the-mark days, including awesome fan artwork, some great candid photos from various events, and the sail barge set from Return of the Jedi, uh, several of which you can see in the full show notes on the main site, starwarsatthemovies.com. The Orange County Saga rages on in the next episode, where you'll hear from journalist, film historian, and major lifeline for this podcast, Michael Coat. So stay tuned for that. Until then, you can follow the project on Facebook, on Twitter at SWAtTheMovies, and on Instagram at StarWarsAtTheMovies, and always feel free to reach out via email at StarWarsAtTheMovies at gmail.com. Any feedback and reviews for the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen are also immensely appreciated. Thanks so much for listening, and remember... Relax. It's only a movie, and it's all for fun.